morning. Once again. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue our series in Matthew chapter 5. Working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in verse 43 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. I'll say a lot this morning, but uh, what I know is true is what we're about to read from the Word. So let's stand as we read that together this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. It says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may become sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for the Jesus who is giving us these words this morning in this sermon. I want to thank you for his death on the cross and our place for our sins, taking on the responsibility that was ours on himself and paying it for us. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for giving us access to pray to you this morning, God. Thank you for the opportunity our church has had to take the gospel not only to Mount Carmel but to Bosnia. God, I pray for our team today who's there, God, that that you would do an amazing work in the hearts of the Bosnian people today, tomorrow, and long after they leave. God, for us this morning, I pray that you would just be relentless in your pursuit of holiness in us. God, don't let us leave this morning with hate in our hearts. God, we ask your Holy Spirit to show us where we have ill will toward others. And God, stir us to repent of it today so that we can be like you, sons and daughters of our Father. All this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever heard the saying, um, God helps those who help themselves? Show of hands, have you heard it? I'm not saying you believe it. Have you heard it? God helps those who help themselves. Okay, bonus question. Where is that in the Bible? I'm encouraged because for the most part, I I see like some of these and and some of these and, and some people like getting up ready to fight me. No, that is not in the Bible whatsoever. The phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is not in the Bible whatsoever. It sounds like it could be, maybe, but it's actually, its popularity is attributed to Benjamin Franklin as it was quoted in his Poor Richard's Almanac. But in reality, the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, isn't biblical at all. And depending on what a person means by it, it falls on a spectrum of unwise to just flat-out heretical <laughs> against what the Bible teaches. And the reason is, is because I read in the Bible verses like, our God is a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in distress, 
Well, if God helps those who help themselves, but he also helps the helpless, I don't see those working together very well. That's in Isaiah 25 and Romans 5. While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Romans chapter 5. And despite this, we've heard it. And maybe we've even repeated it. Um, but, and so why do I bring that up? Why do, why do I bring this phrase up? It's because for the last six weeks, we've been reading verses where Jesus had to clarify some misunderstandings, these, these statements that were common among the people, maybe were even taught in the synagogues. He had to clarify that they were wrong. And so if you're still in Matthew chapter 5, let me just give you, just, just kind of run through this, because there's some phrases that I hope you've picked up on in, say, the last six or eight weeks that are really, really important. So if we look back, Matthew chapter 5, we look back in verse 21. What does that verse begin with? It says, you have heard that it was said of old, verse 22, but I say to you. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, verse 28, but I say to you. Verse 31, it was also said, verse 32, but I said to you. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said from old. Verse 34, but I, see, but I say to you. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said. Verse 39, but I say to you. And then again, in today's passage, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And so we're on the, now on the last of these six ideas that Jesus feels led to clear up in this sermon. And they all seem to come from a twisting of Scripture over time. And so over the last six or eight weeks, we've dealt with, Jesus has dealt with issues like anger. Clarifying what anger, what, what would constitute sinful anger. He's talked about lust. He's talked about divorce. He's talked about oaths. Last week, Matt spoke on retaliation. And in criticizing these wrong teachings, Jesus is also criticizing the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are teaching them as well. And so as a reminder, because we're about to wrap up this section of the Sermon on the Mount, this, this section within the entire sermon, the section starts with verse 17, and it's, it's on the importance of God's law. And there we see the bold statement that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, by their actions, the scribes and the Pharisees appeared to be the most righteous people in the world. And so as people are hearing this phrase, I have to be more righteous than them, they don't understand how that's even possible. This statement would have caused Jesus' listeners to wonder, how can I ever be more righteous than them? But what Jesus has been doing in these passages we've been studying for the past several weeks is exposing the sinfulness of their hearts, the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes. That although their actions seemed righteous, their hearts were far away from God. He's going to expose that in us today as we speak about why is it important that we love our enemies. I'm going to give you three reasons. Why is it important that we love our enemies? Reason number one, loving your enemies is and always has been the will of God. Loving your enemies is and always has been the will of God. What do we read in verse 43? Verse 43, Matthew 5 says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecuted you. And so the statement that was going around, the statement that was being taught, the statement that Jesus implies everybody is familiar with 
is this statement, you shall love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. And the verse was most likely twisted from the Old Testament scripture in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And so I'm going to go ahead and have you turn to Leviticus. If you've got a bulletin or a finger, we'll, we'll just go back and forth just a little bit between Leviticus and Matthew. And we're going to go to a, a passage that Matt even brought up last week, I believe. Leviticus chapter 19. Way back at the beginning of your Bible. Kids do Bible drill. They were probably there like five minutes ago. I'm just now getting there. <laughs> Leviticus 19. So the, 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 the verse in the Old Testament that they were probably twisting over time is found in Leviticus 19, verse 18. And it says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So specifically, if we just wanted to just kind of narrow in what the phrase probably came from, it's probably the second part of that verse where it says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so there's two major issues with the, with the, with the phrase, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and uh, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And, and what the teachers had done in that day was they had added something to that verse and they had taken something away from that verse. They had added something and taken it away. Let me explain. So they had left something out. They had left something key out of this statement that they were making, and that is, as yourself. So when you look at, at their saying today that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, there is no as yourself in there. Even though the Old Testament clearly says that, there is no as yourself. And that makes sense because it's a defining characteristic of the New Testament Pharisees to be self-righteous. It's kind of their MO. As you read through the New Testament, that's pretty much how they're described. Let me just give you an example in Luke 18. It's one that just is going to make you cringe as you, as you hear it. Luke 18, 11 says this, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. So he's, he's in front of a bunch of people, maybe like I am, and he's praying. This is the prayer that he prays. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. It just screams of haughtiness. And yet, as we read through the description of the Pharisees, we find that that becomes Jesus' key um, opponent, so to speak. As he's teaching, the Pharisees are, are, are pushing back on the very words of the Son of God. And we see so much arrogance oozing out of them. And so how could somebody harboring that attitude ever imagine some, loving someone like they love themselves? Can you imagine this Pharisee praying this way and loving someone like he loves himself? I read that and I think there, he doesn't love anybody in this world more than he loves himself. And so it's, not a, it's no wonder that that part of the verse, as yourself, disappeared from the teaching over time. Can't you sort of see how that happened? It was a little inconvenient. So maybe over time it moved away. But not only did they leave something out, they also added something that the verse never said in the Old Testament. And that's this, and hate your enemy. That wasn't there. That, w- that wasn't in there. The statement that they had been saying was, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Hate your enemy is not in the Old Testament verse. And it seems as though the teaching had led people, led people to believe that love was reserved only for neighbors as they defined it. Probably meaning only other Israelites. 
So over time, that became the understanding. Loving your neighbors was only reserved to those people who are my neighbors, which I think are the people just like me. And so there are verses that directly address love towards other Israelites in the Old Testament. So it wasn't that far of a stretch to do that. And so if you're back in Leviticus 19, if we combine verses 17 and verses 18, we see this, we see this, 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 this passage right here. It says this, Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with him, with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And it's almost as the command to not hate your brother was interpreted as, but it's okay to hate anyone else besides your brother, right? It didn't say that, but it's almost like they said, okay, it says, don't hate your brother, so that must mean it's cool for me to hate anybody else besides my brother. Except that... In the same chapter of Leviticus, if you're still there, we're still in 19, same chapter. It may be on the same page in your Bible. It says this in verse 33, Leviticus 19, 33. Same page, same chapter, same set of instructions. It says this, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as a native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Did you notice something there? So with your brothers, you're supposed to love them as you love yourself. So what do you do with the strangers? Those who aren't like you. Those who are foreigners to the Israelites. What do you, how should you treat them? Oh wait, in verse 34 it says, You shall love them like you love yourself. Does, is there any occasion to hate in that verse? No, it uses the exact same language. You should love them like you love yourself. But it's really convenient to pick and choose verses to your own ends, especially when it justifies what you already want to do. And I think you know that this is possible, but you can sort of make the Bible say whatever you want. It doesn't mean that it's true, but you can make it say whatever you want to justify your own ends. Let me give you an example. We don't talk a ton about denominational life, um, but we're part of the Southern Baptist Convention. A couple weeks ago, they had their annual meeting, which is basically, it's a big business meeting. So you probably wouldn't enjoy it uh, for the most part. But it's a big business meeting, and messengers from all different churches come, and they, and they come to this annual meeting. And one of the things that comes out of these meetings are they pass resolutions. And they maybe passed a dozen or so resolutions at this last one. And, and these resolutions are not binding statements, but they are... Uh, but they kind of show where the heart of the messengers are, the domination is. And one of the resolutions they passed was, was something that I was somewhat unfamiliar with, although I had heard of. But they passed a resolution denouncing something called the Curse of Ham Doctrine. Have you heard of this? The Curse of Ham Doctrine. And I say this because it feels so timely when we're thinking about twisting Scripture for our own means. But the Curse of Ham Doctrine, in a nutshell, said this. That in the Bible, there is a curse placed on uh, the son of a man named Ham. Ham was Noah's son, right? You know Noah, right? The flood. Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, Jepheth. Um, and then Ham had a son named Canaan. And something happened. We won't get into that. And, and Noah cursed Ham's son, Canaan, and he cursed him in this way. And this is what's important. He said, you will be a servant of servants 
You will serve Sham. You will serve, you will serve Japheth. You will be a servant. Well, what happened over time is people said, okay, I found a verse in the Bible that says that there are a people who are meant to be servants. Right? And then here's what they did. They said, I look back and I found in Ham's lineage that a lot of people who came from his lineage settled in Africa. This is no joke. A lot of people from Ham's lineage settled in Africa. And so Ham is sort of a patriarch of everyone of African descent. So now I have Ham, according to this teaching, which is false. I have Ham, who is a patriarch of all dark-skinned people. And I have this curse of servitude. I think it's okay for me to enslave an entire race of people. That really happened. And so in this convention, what they did is they said, that's wrong, that's evil, and we renounce that. That even Southern Baptist people have believed that in the past, and it was wrong, and we're repenting of it. And so I praise God for that. But can you see how people took parts of Scripture, and they put them together to come up with a whole theology to justify the thing that they wanted to happen, right? And so when we're looking at the scripture, it's not that hard for us to see how over time these scribes and these Pharisees had sort of piecemealed these scriptures together and come up with something that is completely against what the Bible teaches, which is to love your, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But not only does Leviticus 19 not mention any kind of permission to hate our enemies, but there are occasions in the Old Testament where we're told just the opposite. Right? And you've heard these. They're in Proverbs. Proverbs 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. I think you know that one. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Man, that sounds like hatred. Proverbs 24. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. Man, that sounds like hatred. No, it doesn't sound like hatred at all. See, these Pharisees and scribes, they were Old Testament scholars, and they knew these verses. Yet over time, it appears they became less important due to the wandering of their hearts. So our first point is that loving your enemies is and always has been the will of God. There was no justification for hating your enemies when we look at these verses in the Old Testament. So what's number two? Let me go back. I skipped some. So we're instructed not only to love our enemies, but we're also to pray for those who persecute you. We can't, we can't leave out this part. We're instructed not only to love our enemies, but we're instructed to pray for those that persecute you. And so the Greek word to love, for love here is agape. You've probably heard that before. The Greek word for love is agape. Agape is best understood as the love God has for his people. It's a self-giving love that shows its commitment through action. A self-giving love that shows its commitment through action. And so the action here that we're instructed to do is to actively pray for those who you see as enemies of you. So you're not only supposed to love them, but you're also supposed to pray for them. So let's ask ourselves, who is our enemy? That might be a good question to answer. Who is our enemy? Well, the passage isn't specific when defining what an enemy is. You know, the Greek word that's typically translated is, is usually translated enemy or foe. And the root word meaning actively or passively to hate or oppose. So that gives us a little bit of understanding. 
But the point of this passage, though, is not to clearly define enemy, lest we fall into the same tendency of the Pharisee who questioned Jesus, asking him to clarify who his neighbor was so that he could selectively love only those people. So I like John MacArthur's words here as I was studying when he was speaking of enemies. And he said this of enemies. He said, often they are ordinary people who are mean, impatient, judgmental, self-righteous, and spiteful, or just happen to disagree with us. In whatever personal relationships we have, God wants us to love. Whether a conflict is with our marriage partner, our children or parents, our friends and fellow church members, a devious business opponent, spiteful neighbor, political foe, or social antagonist, our attitude toward them should be one of prayerful love. Prayerful love. So let's stop a moment and ask this question. I want you to ask this for yourself. I've been thinking about this for a week. I want you to think through it too. Who should you be praying for? Who should you be praying for? Who do you feel is persecuting you? And and I don't mean to minimize that. They may be persecuting you. But who do you feel is persecuting you? Who do you feel is an enemy to you? Let me challenge you with this. Would you commit to praying for them daily this week? To follow in obedience to what we... That's not me. That's like the scripture saying that you should pray for them that persecute you. So would you commit to praying for them daily this week? That when you feel the anger welling up in you, would you commit to respond in prayer? There's a lot of different ways you can respond when you get angry. But would you commit to responding in prayer when you get angry to those pe- with those people? Because I believe that as we seek their good through prayer, God will ultimately do something even greater in the depths of our hearts. He's going to change us. When you start praying for your enemies, God is going to change you. So now let's move on to point number two. Number two is this. Loving your enemies is an imitation of God himself. Loving your enemies is an imitation of God himself. What do we see in Matthew 5, verses 44? You can take your finger out of Leviticus if you got it there. We're good now. Matthew 5, verse 44, it says this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the un, on the and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So when we're talking about loving our enemies. We get a why here. So did you notice the why? Did you see why God asked us to treat our enemies this way? And it's because it's an imitation of the grace that he shows his enemies. And so, um, my dad's not here this morning. Um, if you know me, I, I, I am, I'm a splitting image of my father. Um, it freaks people out sometimes. Um, like, if, even if you don't know me or you never met me or you never met my dad, if like he was in a, we were in a crowded room and I gave you five minutes and you have like one pretty good eye, you're going to find out like that guy's his dad, clearly. And so there's a very real sense with all the good and the bad <laughs> that I am a physical reflection of my father. I, we get thin up here in the same spot and everything. Shape the same. We're just, but there's a sense in which I am a physical reflection of my father. And what we see here is that we love our enemies, that we are a spiritual reflection of our heavenly father. 
You get that? We're a spiritual reflection of our Heavenly Father. So what does it say? How does God show love to his enemies? Well, in the second half of verse 45, it says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Right? What does that mean? Well, yesterday was absolutely gorgeous. Right? With all this heat, yesterday was absolutely a beautiful day. Right? Uh, my brother happened to be coming through town, ended up firing up the grill yesterday evening, and it was just, it was just so nice outside. And so let me ask you this. Was it only God's people who got to experience the beautiful day we had yesterday? I mean, I, I know that goes without saying, but the answer is no, no. See, whether you believe in God or not, whether you hate God or love God, everybody got to experience the beauty that was yesterday. And maybe today, I don't know, it's looking not quite sunny, but, but temperature-wise, it's very nice. And so this is frequently referred to by theologians as God's common grace. Grace that is common to all. It's not a special grace that's only for God's people. It's God showing his grace to everyone. And so if we were looking at the example of this in the preaching of Paul in Acts chapter 14, he says this. So him and Paul and Barnabas are preaching in a town called Lystra. And he gives this part. This is part of his sermon. He says this. In past generations, he, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, which is not a good thing for those nations. Yet he did not leave himself without a witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See, in these verses, Paul goes as far as describing this kindness of God towards a people who believed in other gods as a witness of his superiority, his sovereignty, his sovereign goodness. See, everything we have is a gift from God. And not just a gift that you receive if you believe in Jesus, but we all receive. Yesterday was a gift. Today is a gift. The breath you just breathed is a gift from God. The lunch you're going to eat, if I ever get done, is going to be a gift from God. And even if you're here today and you don't buy this Jesus stuff, let's I understand that. You're still receiving good gifts from a creator who shows love to you even despite your rebellion. He's showing love to you despite your rebellion. And Jesus is teaching these words early in his ministry, but later we're going to see the greatest example of kindness towards enemies that has ever existed. And that's the picture of Jesus dying at the hands of his enemies. After illegally arresting Jesus, they beat him. They put him through a farce of a trial. They beat him again within inches of his life. They nailed him to a cross, leaving him there to suffocate. And among his last words that he breathed was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Forgive them. I love John Stott's commentary here. He says this. It says, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while the iron spikes are being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating his entreaty, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here's the key. Listen to this. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, pride, 
prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours. If the cruel torture of the crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify the silencing of ours, our prayers? God himself in human form, the very object of our faith, when facing death at the hands of the very people he came to save, loved his enemies, prayed on their behalf, and he prayed that they be forgiven of murdering him. That's next level kind of forgiveness. That's next level kind of love. And it's, it's hard. So as I say that, it's not like, oh, just go do that now, right? Because that's, that's the easy part of these verses. They're really simple to understand, right? Go love your, you know, uh, go love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies and pray for them. Go. Like, this could be like a two-second sermon, right? Except that we're not going to do that. We're going to struggle with that. It's going to be hard. But agape love is an action even more than it is a feeling. And I don't know what Jesus was feeling besides pain in the moments before his death, but I see his sacrifice and I see the prayer for those who hated him. And I long to have that kind of resolve of love for those who might oppose me. And I pray you do as well. So number three, loving enemies sets us apart from the world. Third reason is loving enemies sets us apart from the world. Let's look at Matthew 5, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? But do not even the Gentiles do the same? See, tax collectors in Jesus' time, and some of you might say still, um, (laughs) they were despised. They were Roman-appointed officials that were known for cheating and for extortion. And so because of that, they were despised among the people. And so when Jesus is trying to teach something, he's pointing them towards people they don't like. He's pointing them towards people who they probably consider their enemies as an example of how they should at least have a greater love than them. And so we get to see a glimpse of this. You know, Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? You know the song? It's Bible school. We'll probably sing it um, here in a couple weeks. But we can see that in the life of Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus, he's changed by meeting Jesus, and he alludes to needing to pay back for all the people he had stolen from, all the people he defrauded. So that's the tax collectors. Now, the Gentiles, they referred to as dogs by the Jews. They had historically been the enemies of Israel, so there weren't friendly feelings there. And so in this passage, Jesus warns that we are to not just love those who are easy to love. He was telling his listeners that even the people that they despise can love like that. He's saying, okay, so, hey, uh, you, you're, you're an Israelite man. You love Ezra, other Israelite men? Okay, you know, there's no trophy for that. Even the tax collectors do that. Even those people you hate, they love people like themselves. This is a different kind of love. He was calling them to a greater love, to love those who were not like them, even those who would hate them. And so I ran across another quote I want to share. I know it's a lot of quotes, but I ran across another quote I want to share with you that, that as I was studying was quite a punch in the gut. So I guess that means I want to punch you in the gut. I, I don't know what that means. But it, it really stuck with me, and, and maybe it'll stick with you as well. But it's this. It says, In loving his friends, a man may, may, in a certain sense, be loving only himself, a kind of expanded selfishness. Say that again. In loving his friends, a man may, in a certain sense, be loving only himself, a kind of expanded selfishness. And what I take that to mean is this. 
If you love only the people who are like you, you may just be loving your reflection in them. Does that make sense? I hope you caught that. I, that. That stuck with me. I have all the things in this. There's, there's so much in here. But if you love only the people who are like you, you may just be loving your reflection in them. Our entire culture is becoming defined by this idea that you should find other people who think and act the way you do and team up with them to disparage and degrade people who think and act differently. To turn them into a caricature and to tear them down. I can't be the only one who sees that. And I can't help but that tendency invades the church as well. And so I just want to say this, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. You know that we can disagree and still love each other, right? Like, we can do that. We can disagree and still love each other like we love ourselves. Like, we can do that. Maybe you're saying, of course we can. Well, let me dig a little deeper. You know that we can have different opinions on political issues and still love each other like we love ourselves. Like, you know that, right? I'm afraid we don't. That's why, that's why I'm driving this home. I want you to really think about this. Like, we can have different opinions. We can be involved in different activities that our families participate in. And we can still love each other like we love ourselves. Like, we don't, we don't have to be enemies. We can, involve, we can be involved in different ministries where we primarily serve. And, and we can still love each other like we love ourselves. We don't, we don't have to be enemies. And we can come, and sometimes this is difficult, but we can come to different views on what passages of the Bible mean. And we can still absolutely love each other like we love ourselves. We can have different views on whether LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan. If you didn't get that, that's okay. But we can still love each other like we love ourselves. 6 and 0 means something. <clears throat> Once again, if you didn't get that, that's fine. So let me ask you this this morning. Where are your blind spots? Where are your blind spots? Who are the people who are different than you? that you find hard to love? Just think about it. Who are the people who are different than you that you find hard to love? You know, we already told you to pray for them, but maybe we go an extra step on this point. Maybe we say this. What can you do to actively pursue to understand points of view that are different than yours as you seek to love those who are different than you? Maybe even those who actively oppress or hate you. What can you do to at least understand them in a pursuit to love them as you love yourself. What can you do? What steps can you take to actively pursue loving them and getting to know them and understanding them? Guys, don't let the world that we live in invade this church. <laughs> don't do it. Don't let the attitudes and, and, the, and the polarizing nature of all viewpoints anymore find its way in here. Our God is love. He doesn't just love. He is love. And we should be a reflection of that. So let me conclude with this. 
As if those verses weren't hard enough to follow as well, we get verse 48, and that's where we get to stop today. Verse 48 of Matthew 5 says this, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. <laughs> Lest it get any easier, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Why is this verse here? It almost seems a little out of place. But it's not, because it serves as a bookend for this section of Scripture that we've been covering that began back in verse 17. So having begun with the declaration that Jesus came to fulfill the law, not abolish it, it now ends with the command to do what the law requires, and that's perfect obedience. So we began by saying the law is good. I remember Steve just saying the law is good. I love the law. Talking about David's saying I love the law and how strange that is to our ears. I remember that. And, and that's where it started in verse 17. And now it's saying fulfill the law by being perfect as I am perfect. And, uh, and that's a problem. Right? Because you're not perfect. And I'm not perfect. And if I started today trying to be perfect, I would probably be not perfect by lunchtime. And most of that time will be spent here. There's, I'm going to do something. I'm going to have, a, I'm going to have a, an attitude or a, a heart issue that I'm going to have to deal with. And it's just going to be wrong. And I'm going to have to repent of that. Because we're not perfect. But the good news is for us. It's found in the one preaching this sermon that we're reading from today. That's where the good news is found. In the one preaching this sermon today. Not me, but the Sermon on the Mount sermon in Matthew chapter 5. Because in a few short years, this preacher will fulfill the law on our behalf, living a sinless, perfect life and dying for those who were neither sinless nor perfect. By trusting God in faith, that perfect life of Jesus can be applied to us so that God doesn't see us as an enemy, but he sees us as a friend. And I want to leave you with these verses from Colossians. They're some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is in Colossians chapter 1 and the way it talks about Jesus. But Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and verse 22. And it says this, And you, meaning all of us, and you, who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And what those verses tell me is that my status before God, before Jesus changes my life, is that I am an enemy of God, that I am actively rebelling against God, and that I'm hostile towards God. But Jesus, right? But Jesus changes me. He, in his body on the cross, dies for all those sins that I should die for. And now, because I believed in him by faith, I can stand holy and blameless and above reproach before God. That is amazing. And that is offered to all who would place their faith and trust in Jesus. And I know many of you have, and I don't know if all of you have. And so this morning, as Tim comes back up, to play, we're going to have a time of response. And, and the time of response can be varied. For some of you, it may just be singing along with our song. I think it's my Savior, my God. But you know. And that's okay. For others, I've been praying for you for probably two weeks now. I don't know who you are. My prayer would be that God would show you 
the anger and the hatred that you have in your heart so that you could repent of it. That you should love your neighbor. Maybe the Holy Spirit, it's my prayer, the Holy Spirit brought something to mind that maybe you need to correct. That God is showing you it's not right the way you feel about those people. And that you need to love them and you need to pray for them. And so for some of you, maybe that's what you would do with this time. For others, if you don't know this Jesus who loves his enemies even to the point of death on the cross, there is literally nothing I'd rather talk to you about today than that. And so if you'd like to talk about that, I'll be down here uh, while we sing, and I'll be back in the back after the service. But I want you to know this God, this Jesus who loves you, even to the point that he would die for you. Even though you don't know him, you don't love him, uh, maybe you even hate him, but he loves you. So as we sing, we're going to stand. And I just pray that you would respond however God leads you this morning. Let's stand and sing. What is the gospel? It all begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, to rule over the garden. God told them they could eat from any tree that they wanted to in the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything was perfect in the garden. They had a perfect relationship with the land, a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect relationship with God until they chose to rebel against God and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it brought about separation between them and God. Man has always tried to bridge the separation on his own terms and in his own strength. Whether it's building a ladder of morality and trying to be good enough for God, or even in the Old Testament example, when men built a tower into the heavens trying to reach God on their own. A more contemporary example comes from 1961, when the Russians were first successful in sending a man into outer space. Upon returning, the Russian cosmonaut remarked, We have been to space, and we didn't find God or heaven there. A popular professor and author, C.S. Lewis, responded to the Russian cosmonaut. He said that looking for God in outer space is kind of like Hamlet, one of the characters in Shakespeare's plays, looking for Shakespeare in the attic of his home. Lewis said that for Hamlet to have a relationship with Shakespeare, Shakespeare would literally have to write himself into the story. That is the gospel. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Almost 2,000 years ago, the Bible says that Jesus, in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecies, was born of a virgin. Even as a child, he lived a perfect life. At the age of 30, he began his public ministry. He attracted followers. For three years, he taught, he healed, and he made bold claims, such as saying that he alone was the only way to God. The religious and political leaders did not like these teachings. They invoked a riot against Jesus. They brought about false accusations leading to a trial and to a sentencing of death by public crucifixion. The Bible says that while Jesus hung on the cross, that God placed all of the sin of all of mankind on Jesus. Jesus hung on the cross as our substitute. God made him him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. They took Jesus down from the cross and they put him in a tomb. They rolled a large stone at the entrance of the tomb so no one could get in or out. There were Roman soldiers who were posted on guard to keep people from coming to take Jesus's body. But on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. After being seen by many eyewitnesses and giving instruction to his followers, he ascended back into the heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of God and serves as our advocate before the Father. So what does this have to do with you?
The Bible says that we have all sinned and that we all fall short of God's standard of holiness. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no way to get rid of the burden of sin on our own. God calls all men everywhere to believe in Christ, repent of sins, and trust Christ to live a new life. As we look back and believe in what God has done through the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, as we repent and turn from our sins, as we trust Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. So let's review. It all begins with God. Because of our sin, we are separated from God. The gospel is the account of God writing himself into human history. Jesus died in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day. As we believe in Christ, repent from our sins, and trust Jesus for new life, we have peace with God and forgiveness of sins. That is the gospel.